Hello, and welcome to today's episode of Hooked on Homeschool. Boy, do I have a treat in store for you today. I am interviewing Mr. Alex Newman. He is an award-winning international journalist, educator, author, and consultant who seeks to glorify God and this country in everything that he does. He is so passionate. He is a walking encyclopedia of history, and you are going to enjoy listening to today's episode where he talks about the evolution of school, how it started, how it began, and where we are headed. So do not miss today's episode. I am so excited to get it started. Hi, friends. Are you ready to homeschool, but you're just not sure how to begin? Do you feel overwhelmed or frustrated with the public school and noticing that your child is constantly struggling or falling behind? Are you ready to say goodbye to that hectic and stressful weekday schedule and embrace a completely different approach? Do you find that your child is exhausted from those long days at school, followed by hours of homework at night? And are you constantly experiencing stress and overwhelm as a result? I'm here to share some great news with you. There is a better way, and it's called homeschooling. Experience quiet and peaceful mornings again. How about instilling a sense of joy and excitement for learning in your child? Witness their true passions unfold as you go on this fulfilling journey together. Welcome to Hooked on Homeschool. I am Dawn Janowitz, a homeschool mom, wife, podcaster, and online course creator. And I want to give you the clarity, the confidence, the freedom, and all the strategies to show you that it is possible to create an amazing homeschool experience that works for both you and your kids. So come on, ladies, let's go from hot mess express to fierce and fun, and let's get hooked on homeschool. Hi, Alex. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Great to be here. Thank you for having me, Don. Wonderful, wonderful. So I'm excited to go ahead and dive into why we have education and kind of where it started. So go back as far as you can and go ahead and tell us the history. Yeah, well, thank you. It's, it's a fascinating history. You know, I, I think the, the first example you can find of kind of systematized government-involved education is Sparta. Uh, you know, they, they had this kind of fascist totalitarian system where everybody needed to be raised to fulfill their proper duty in society. And so all, all the young boys, for example, I think starting around age six, seven, eight, uh, would be conscripted into this military school where they'd be brainwashed and turned into good little statist warriors who would defend the city-state and so on. And then, you know, Plato comes along and proposes this idea. It's hard to know exactly how seriously, but he proposes this idea that government really should be educating all the children. He he talks about the ideal city-state that would be ruled over by these philosopher kings and the philosopher kings would be very highly educated. They'd be brought up to understand uh, how to rule properly, to be wise, and so on. And the subjects would be trained up to be good, obedient, uh, you know, model citizens. Now, again, it's hard to know how serious Plato was. At the end, he kind of makes this argument that, well, all this is impossible. So, But that's kind of the, the genesis that I can find of this idea that government should run education. But to, to kind of fast forward a little bit, you know, throughout church history, it's generally been understood that the, the primary overseers of education should be parents. 
Now that was that held for maybe fifteen hundred years. The Protestant Reformation came along, and uh, the Church started taking a greater role in education. And the Catholic Church, for a long time, did have kind of elite education. You know, they would train their their priests and the the clergy how to read, how to understand Scripture, and they they would learn quite a few things. But uh, the the average citizen basically got the education that they got from their parents, and that was the extent of it. And you know, a lot of it involved farming, how to run a household, things like that. Protestant Reformation comes along, you get the printing press, and you get this idea that the masses should be able to read the Bible. Now, the the authorities at that time very strongly resisted that idea. In fact, as, as people know from their history books, a lot of people were burned at the stake for trying to make the Bible uh, widely accessible to the general public and the vernacular and the, the languages of the local people. A lot of people lost their lives for that. But ultimately, with the, with the printing press and the Protestant Reformation, the idea that the masses should be literate, that the masses should read, became pretty widespread, pretty widely diffused. And at this time, again, education was primarily the purview of parents. And then the church started playing a supplemental role there. Martin Luther did believe that the church should play an expanding role in the education of children. And then you fast forward, uh, and we're, we're skipping over you know big chunks of time, but I'm trying to hit the highlights in the time that we have. Uh, you fast forward to the end of the 1700s, uh, early 1800s. You have this uh, Welsh utopian by the name of Robert Owen, and he he clearly believed what he was teaching, but he he kind of adopted Marxist ideals even before Karl Marx came along. He believed in abolishing private property. He believed in dismantling the nuclear family. He wanted to create this kind of like a, a cult utopian society where everybody would just be working for the collective and so on. And he believed in this so fervently that he actually bought a, a piece of property up in Indiana and created a commune called New Harmony. It failed, obviously, pretty quickly. <laughs> it didn't last long, uh, less than two years, I believe. And, and the whole thing had fallen apart because, of course, it's ridiculous. Right? Getting rid of private property, we know what that does. Getting rid of the family, uh, obviously, is catastrophic. So he had written a bunch of essays, and I encourage people to read them. I mean, he, he lays out his case for government education. He says the best government will be the government that, that handles the education of citizens and does a really good job educating citizens. So he puts these things on paper. The Prussian ambassador gets a hold of these essays and takes them back to Prussia. Now, the context in Prussia, you know, Prussia had, had recently lost a war against Napoleon. Uh, you know, the dictator there was still smarting over that. And, and he thought, well, you know, if we could educate these people to be better soldiers, more obedient, you know, quit being so independent minded, maybe we could have defeated Napoleon. And at least for the next one, we'll be ready. So with that context, he, he takes these essays that have been given to him by the ambassador. And we have the record uh, from Robert Owen, actually. He writes in his autobiography that the Prussian dictator so much approved of these writings that he ordered his interior minister to go ahead and set up a government school system in Prussia. And that's, that's the first example I can find in the contemporary era of uh, government of the state, by the state, for the state. And it really was, right? It, it was dedicated to instilling obedience to the government, dedicated to instilling obedience to your superiors, really statist indoctrination masquerading as education. And of course, there was a little bit of education thrown in there. But really, it was about creating obedient serfs, if you will, more than independent thinkers and philosophers. You have this going on in Prussia, and uh, you have a guy, well, uh, let me stop with Robert Owen for a minute, too. Uh, he understood that these ideas would not be popular, right? He did not believe that we needed the Bible involved in education, which at that time, the Bible was the textbook that Americans used to educate their children. You know, they would learn to read using the Blueback Speller, or, uh, Noah Webster's Noah Webster's book, or the New England Primer. So the idea that you would get rid of the Bible in education or that you would hand your children over to the government for education was just simply preposterous. It, it was crazy. You did have a, a brief period in New England uh, when the, the Puritans settled and the Pilgrims came where they set up. It, it was kind of like a Bible colony. 
and they set up this education, not really a system, but they ordered every town to make sure that everybody in that town could read. Uh, they passed a really interesting law called the Old Deluder Satan Act. And so that shows you how central the Bible was. They, the argument in this text of the law was that that old deluder Satan wants to deprive men of knowledge of the scriptures, right? Wants to keep, and, and, you know, they had what had just happened in Europe in mind, you know, people being burned at the stake for trying to translate the Bible. So that's kind of what was going on in their mind. But they said the devil wants to prevent you from learning the scriptures so that he can deceive you. And therefore, everybody in this colony, the Massachusetts Bay Colony, and this was 1640s, needs to know how to read so that they can read the Bible so that Satan won't deceive them. So that's how central the Bible was. Now, fast forward a couple hundred years and uh, you have Horace Mann. Oh, no, sorry. Look, I'm jumping all over the place, but let's go back to Robert Owen for a minute. He knew that these ideas were not going to be popular, getting the Bible out, dismantling the family, uh, excluding church life from the community. So uh, he set up, uh, and we know of this because of a whistleblower who was part of this operation. He set up what was described by a whistleblower as a secret society modeled on the Carbonari. Fascinating fascinating story. The name of the whistleblower was Orestes Brownson. He wrote a lot. He wrote very extensively about this. He said uh, the secret society was based on this model of the Carbonari in Europe, this Italian secret society. And he said their twin objectives on, on its face were shift public opinion. So try to convince people that government education would be a good thing, or at least government involvement in education. And then the second goal was to try to get men elected to the legislatures who would support government education. And so Orsis Brownson said the great object, the ultimate objective of this movement, he said, was to undermine and destroy Christianity. So, so that was what Robert Owen was thinking. He recognized, just like Karl Marx recognized, just like Antonio Gramsci recognized, just like totalitarians have always recognized, Christianity is a major obstacle to being able to, to advance with these plans for utopia, for totalitarian societies. So he wanted to undermine Christianity. And that was one of his great objects, according to the whistleblower who exposed this. So we don't know exactly what happened with the society. By their nature, secret societies are very difficult to track. It's very hard to say, well, that was a result of the society. And, you know, it, it's hard to know what happened organically and what was happening due to forces and machinations behind the scenes. But that's the, the background there. And so fast forward a little bit to the 1830s. You have a guy who clearly has some of these same beliefs, right? We got to get the Bible out of education. The government should be educating children. We should get that responsibility out of the hands of parents, out of the hands of the church, into the hands of the state. And uh, he gets himself selected in 1837 as the Secretary of Education for Massachusetts. No state had ever had a Secretary of Education prior to this time. So Horace Mann becomes the first, the, the Secretary of Education. And right away, he starts bringing the Prussian system into Massachusetts. Um, he, he actually traveled to Prussia and studied this system and couldn't say enough good things about it. So he starts bringing this to the United States, complete with the normal schools that would train the teachers so that the teachers would teach what the government wanted them to teach. They start demonizing private schools. They start demonizing homeschooling and parental ed education and start making the case that really these kids need to be educated by the state so they can become useful. He seriously proposes getting the Bible out of school. Of course, that doesn't go over very well. Again, the, the context is you're in a society where Bible is the primary book that uh, they are using in your education. So he sets up this system, starts setting up uh, government schools across Boston, across Massachusetts, and starts importing these Prussian ideals, uh, switches to a new method of teaching reading. And, you know, we probably don't have time to get into that today, but absolute quackery, absolute horror show. All the headmasters in Boston end up rebelling and saying, hey, this method doesn't work. We're not going to use it anymore. 
So that's the context there. And then after Horace Mann is done doing this damage in Massachusetts, he goes on the road. He becomes uh, an evangelist for government schools. And he, he goes and he, he reaches legislatures and he says, hey, good news, guys. Uh, we can be saved through government education, your society. And he has all these silly arguments. He says, you know, nine tenths of the crimes are going to stop if, if government starts educating children. Of course, we know just the opposite happened, right? Crime is, is just running rampant today. And I believe it's partly or majorly because of what's going on in the public schools. So Horace Mann goes around the country. By the 1850s, you start getting states passing compulsory education laws where the state is saying you must send your kid to a public school. You must have them learn these things. And, and that starts proliferating, especially across the northern states. till you get to the turn of the century, uh, late 1800s, early 1900s, you get another guy comes on the scene, John Dewey. And just like Horace Mann, just like Robert Owen, this is a guy who rejects Christianity, a guy who rejects the, the fundamental principles that the U.S. Republic is founded on, the idea that God gave us rights. In fact, he, he rejects the existence of God entirely. He rejects uh, the the principles of our Constitution and it determines. He actually points to a book that was published in 1888 by Edward Bellamy. A very, very interesting book. It's a fiction book about uh, America in the year 2000 with no private property where a communist utopia has finally been achieved. And so this is where it really gets interesting. So Dewey was, in a very real sense, a communist. Um, he went to the Soviet Union. He loved the system that they had implemented there. He, he really was a communist. He had one big difference with the revolutionaries in that he didn't believe a violent revolution was the best way to go. He thought that if you could just you know, prepare these children for collectivism in the public school system, you wouldn't need a violent revolution to overthrow the power structure, et cetera. So that was his view. He resurrects some of this quackery that Horace Mann had had installed, and he basically seizes control of this architecture that had been laid down, uh, not through his own means, right? The Rockefellers come in, you have these super capitalists who come in that are unbelievably wealthy, and they're giving him money. Uh, the Rockefellers gave him uh, over $3 million to set up an experimental school at the University of Chicago. So you have this weird convergence of communists and super capitalists joining forces to basically dumb down your kids, indoctrinate your kids. And that trend, of course, has accelerated to the point today where our kids can't even read their high school diploma. So so as Horace Mann and John Dewey, as they were going around trying to set up these schools, were the parents liking the idea or were the parents rebelling or were the government saying, you need to do this? What were the, the families wanting? There was a massive amount of resistance. That's this so interesting. You know, people assume that when government education arrived, people treated it as some sort of like godsend. You know, oh, we're liberated finally from ignorance. Nothing could be further from the truth. Parents and ministers were, were really dead set against this. Uh, and a lot of them didn't even realize that the people who were building this system were godless utopians who wanted to undermine the individual liberty and, and our rule of law. But there was a lot of resistance. One of the things that eventually became a very successful selling point for them, which I think is unfortunate, but they needed to get the Protestant ministers on board, right? America was a, a very, very Protestant nation at that time. And at the same time, we were getting a lot of Catholic immigration, right? A lot of people were arriving from Ireland. People were starting to arrive from Southern Europe, from Italy, etc. So you had a, this huge influx of Catholic immigration. And what a lot of the proponents of government school said was, hey, all these Catholics are coming. You know, we better get them into a government school so we can turn them into good Americans and, uh, you know, make sure that they're not uh, practicing popery and, you know, teach their kids at least to be good uh, Protestant Americans. So they kind of played a little bit on the anti-Catholic bigotry of the era to to market this idea of government schools. And and certainly, I'm you know, I, I 
I can guarantee you that some Protestant ministers did buy into that. And they said, well, you know, we, we have this huge influx of Catholics and, you know, Popery is going to take over this land and we're going to lose America as we have known it. We got to find something to do with these Catholic people's kids. And so I'm sure some of that, and I mean, it's demonstrable that some of that played into eventually being able to succeed in getting parents to hand over their kids. Uh, and it was also kind of incremental. Right. It wasn't like you woke up one day and the government said, all right, folks, you're, you you got to hand over your children for nine months out of the year for eight hours. You know, it's like, OK, well, when they're not picking crops, you know, in the summer, maybe they can come and do, you know, maybe a month or, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll start sl slow. So they, they gradually expanded it to the point where it's now this all encompassing institution probably the most powerful institution in America, you know, trillion dollar a year institution. It's got your kids for five days a week for, you know, nine months out of the year, eight hours a day. It didn't start like that. Is it really? Oh, my goodness. And, and if they get their way, I mean, we, we've got video of uh, Arnie Duncan, Obama's education secretary, saying, hey, we, we need some of these kids 24-7. They should live in government boarding schools. And for the other ones, we want them 13, 14, 15 hours a day. We're going to do after-school programming. So, you know, they, they will not stop. There's no point at which they'll say, okay, we have your kids enough. Right? They want to completely cut you out of the picture. Hi, friends. Are you wanting to homeschool, but you just don't even know where to start? If so, I have got some exciting news to share with you. Did you know that I have a free workshop that will help you get started with homeschooling? Plus, I'll give you valuable tips and insights to help guide you along the way. I invite you to visit Hooked on Homeschool, where I'll teach you how to create an amazing homeschool experience right now. Take this first step towards the incredible journey of homeschooling by visiting hookedonhomeschool.com. And so explain a little bit why the government wants to cut the family out of the picture, why they give kids homework and why they're, you know, they want to keep them busy and they don't want them to be a family. So go ahead and give us your opinion on that. Yeah, well, I think there's a lot of different motivations for the people who pursue this. But one of them is is clearly totalitarianism, right? There has been a war on the family since before Karl Marx, but Karl Marx very clearly articulated the idea that the family is a bourgeois institution, that it is perpetuating bourgeois ideals, and that it is perpetuating the class oppression, right, as, as he saw it, right, the, the, the bourgeoisie oppressing the proletariat, and that this is being perpetuated by the nuclear family. So he came up with this idea that women ought to be held in common, that, you know, everybody should be having relations with everybody, that children should be primarily raised by the state from the moment they could be pried loose from their mothers. Um, and, and he wrote this down. Right? I mean, th this is not like some secret agenda. He put this very clearly in his books. Uh, one of the 10 planks of the Communist Manifesto is that all children should be educated in free government-run schools, right? So they understood that the family was a major obstacle and the church was a major obstacle to their agenda to creating this utopian society. And so you know, the family is kind of like a transmission belt, right? Uh, it passes information, it passes values, it passes culture, it passes civilization from one generation to the next. And so if you can interrupt that process, if you can pry a child away from his or her parents and teach them new ideas, right? A, a lot of these guys have the idea that children are just kind of a blank slate. And so when they're born into a family, the family is pouring things on that blank slate that we don't like. Things like patriotism, things like Christianity, things like uh, support for the Constitution, things like support for individual liberty, th things like 
support for future families, right? So uh, they want to interrupt that process. And, you know, they've, they've gotten a long way. Now, obviously, still families play a role, even bad families, they still play a role in that because, of course, they have their kids at least for dinner and, you know, maybe on weekends while they're all staring at their phones, you know, maybe there's some discussions being had. But to the to the extent that they can, they want to undermine that transmission belt so that the values, the culture, the civilization transmission process will be interrupted and then they can build a new one on top of that. So, you know, th there are, of course, naive, uh, the communists often refer to them as useful idiots who believe that this is a good idea, right? Well, the experts know best. And if you read Hillary Clinton's uh, crazy book, It Takes a Village, this really comes through, right? You've got to have people who've been properly trained in, you know, how to raise children. They need PhDs in education and early childhood development and all these kinds of things, rather than just, of course, the love of a mom and the love of a dad. So it's a very, very dangerous idea. It has roots in horrific ideologies that have resulted in the slaughter of hundreds of millions, if not billions of people and the enslavement of billions more. But no matter how many times we see the fruit of this, the totalitarians, for whatever reason, maybe they're wicked. Certainly some of them are. Maybe they're just incredibly naive. They keep pushing it. So, so if someone's listening to this and they're saying, why does someone want to break up the family? Why does our American government want to break up the family? Like, like our government cares about us. I mean, I don't think so. But someone listening, that's like, why would our government do that to us? It's just going to create chaos. Yeah. And, and I think that's a deficiency in worldview. People who assume that everybody else is good, right? And, and Horace Mann made this mistake. And, and so did a lot of the utopians. They believed uh, Robert Owen made this mistake, right? Uh, he believed that the reason his little communist utopia didn't work is because the Christian values had been imposed from one generation onto the next. Uh, and that's why it needed to be smashed because they start with a flawed assumption, right? The Bible teaches that the heart is desperately wicked, right? A lot of the founding fathers, a lot of the men who signed the Declaration of Independence and created the Constitution, they were Calvinist Christians. They believed in the total depravity of man. They, they believed that man was innately and totally depraved. Now, that doesn't mean he was as bad as he possibly could be, but it meant that he was inclined toward evil, inclined to hate God, inclined to hate his neighbor. And I think people who have children kind of see this. Right? You don't teach your children to lie and to cheat and to steal and to beat up their brothers and to steal the kids' lunch. I mean, they, they know these things intuitively, right? You have to teach them not to do those things. And so I think the founding fathers had a better understanding. And I think the Bible provides the true understanding of the nature of man. The totalitarians have historically rejected that, the utopians. They've, they've said, no, mankind is basically good. The reason we have all these problems is because the social institutions aren't quite right. But if we could have the government instill these new values in the kids, you know, the Soviet Union referred to it as creating the new Soviet man, then everything would be great. Then, you know, society would work really well. And to go back to Horace Mann, we could get rid of nine-tenths of the crime, right? And, of course, that was totally ludicrous. But I think it stems ultimately, to get to the core of the answer of your, to your question, it stems from a flawed worldview. It stems from a mistaken understanding of human nature. So the, the naive but kind of well-meaning people who have historically supported this, it's because they don't get it. So, you know, when the founding fathers were creating the U.S. government, they said, you cannot trust other people. You cannot trust human beings. So we're going to have checks and balances. We don't want one guy or a group of guys to have unchecked power. We need to have other people who are also innately depraved and innately wicked to check them 
So we need to kind of play their their negative motivations against each other to protect all of us, right? So it really stems from a flawed worldview. So why do they want to destroy the family? Well, they want to destroy the family because they think they can rebuild society in what they consider to be a better way. And you know, it, it, they always have little tweaks on it. Well, we're not trying to do what Stalin did. We're not trying to do what Castro did. It's going to be different than what Chairman Mao did. You know, we, we learned from the mistakes and that wasn't real communism anyway. We're going to do it differently this time. And, you know, they'll add a little tweak to, to the system, but it always results in the same thing because it's contrary to human nature. It is contrary to the revealed laws of God, and it's contrary to the natural laws that God has ordained that can be discerned just from looking at the creation. Because in our constitution, they didn't mention anything about education, did they? They did not, no. And that's because they it never would have occurred to them that the federal government would play a role in education. You know, e- even the idea that the state would play a role in education was kind of extreme, right? And, you know, in, in the Northwest Ordinance, this was passed around the time that the Constitution was created in, in uh, the late 1780s. You know, they said that religion and morality and education shall forever be encouraged. They didn't mean the government's going to tax you and set up an indoctrination center and then hold you at gunpoint and say, hand over your kids for nine or 10 months out of every year so that we can teach them transgenderism, right? They meant like, oh, you guys need uh, property to create a, a school for your community. Well, you know, here the, the here's some new land that, uh, you know, we're going to settle. Why don't you guys set up a school there? They didn't mean that the government was going to actually run education. And so certainly at the federal level, there is no role at all for education, period, end of story. And basic constitutional understanding will reveal this, right? Most of the powers delegated to the federal government by the states are outlined in Article 1, Section 8, right? All legislative powers are delegated to Congress. All the powers of Congress are listed in Article 1, Section 8. And, you know, you'll find the whole list. You know, have a Navy, uh, you know, operate a post office, uh, protect intellectual property for the advancement of the arts and sciences, uh, regulate commerce. Right? You don't want a state putting up giant walls and saying, you know, you're going to have to pay a 50 percent tax to ship a peach into Florida. Right. So uh, and then, of course, deal with foreign relations and declare war. But um, just and, and they had this discussion like we, we don't need to add a, a Tenth Amendment. It's obvious that if it's not listed here, the federal government doesn't have that power. Everybody will understand that. Uh, and, you know, George Mason and some of the others are like, no, no, let's let's just make it explicit. So they put the Tenth Amendment in there just in case, you know, 250 years later, some very naive people who had been miseducated said, well, it doesn't say they can't do education. So they clarified that in the Tenth Amendment, any powers not delegated to the United States, in other words, not assigned to the federal government by the states and we the people that created it are hereby reserved for the states or the people. And so you could make an argument that it is constitutional for a state government to operate a public education system. You could also make an argument that it's not, you know, using the incorporation of the first 10 amendments, the Bill of Rights, you know, the First Amendment says freedom of religion, freedom of speech. Well, can the government really coerce us into paying for a school that's teaching a religion we disagree with, that's forcing speech on our children we disagree with? So you could make a good argument that even a state school is unconstitutional, but certainly any federal role in education or any federal department of education is anti-constitutional on its face. You know, we got lucky with our, the founding fathers. They, they've been taking a hit the past few years, but they came over from Britain. They saw what it's like to have a king, to have a monarchy. They came over here not wanting any of that. They, they saw what this country needed to be. What is your take on what's kind of been going on with our school system lately? It's hard to overstate the enormity of the catastrophe that our nation is facing uh, because of what passes for education today. 
you know, I, I could talk about it for a week and, and not even scratch the surface. What we're dealing with now as a nation is beyond horrific. We, we see the fruit of this government education system all around us. Our families are, are crumbling. Morality is crumbling. Uh, safety is crumbling. Civilization is crumbling. And, and in fact, I, I believe America is truly standing at the edge of a cliff. Uh, and we may never recover from this. And, and I believe the primary reason that this has happened to us is because we allowed the government to educate children. I think that was a catastrophic mistake. And, and you see this at, at every level. Right? We, we can talk about the dumbing down. Uh, it's not my opinion that your children are being dumbed down. It is a fact. And the federal government will actually, I, I'm amazed that they still publish this because every two years they put out the National Assessment of Educational Progress. Every two years they tell us less than one third of your kids can read write, do math, do history, or do science at a at even a proficient level. I mean, we're not talking about they're really good at it. They're experts. They're masters. They're not even proficient. Okay, What we have is millions of kids graduating from high school who literally, no, no exaggeration, no hyperbole, literally cannot read their high school diploma. No society can survive like that. Right? And, and we're paying a trillion dollars a year for this. Okay. Then you add, okay, so they're dumber than they've ever been. And, and if you don't believe me, go read the Federalist Papers, right? Go, go look at the data on what education looked like. Even a hundred years ago, you will be absolutely blown away. Go read letters from kids from a hundred years ago. You will be blown away. Okay. Then you add to that the indoctrination. They have turned the vast majority of America's children against their families, against their country, against their faith, against their church, against whatever religion their parents were. Uh, and they have turned them into violent, ungrateful revolutionaries who are ready to burn down our country. And if you don't believe me, look at what just happened over the last few years, right? Uh, they have indoctrinated people and dumbed down people to the point now where we don't even know whether, what up is or down, whether up is down or down is up, but we don't even know we're calling or boy, good. girl, girl, boy. That's a great example, right? We don't even know what bathroom to go in, right? We don't realize that God created the male and female. We're having discussions now about infinite genders, right? I mean, it, it, even 10 years ago, nobody would have ever believed that this was going to happen. And yet here we are. And, and if people think this is the last stop on the crazy train, they are not paying attention, right? We, we've got a long way to go. And it, it is truly the, the depths of evil that they're preparing to unleash on us through the public school system would blow your mind. So you've got the dumbing down, the indoctrination, the sexualization, right? They're teaching kindergartners. They might've been born in the wrong body. They're teaching kindergartners to start exper experimenting with homosexuality and fornication and things that I can't even mention here. That's how, I mean, the, the, the depths of depravity that we have fallen into as a nation, uh, we rival Sodom and Gomorrah, if we're quite honest. We've massacred 65 million of our kids and our society is collapsing. I mean, we're, we're just coasting along on the fumes of, what's left, the remnants of our Christian civilization. But the foundations are crumbling. The whole building is going to crumble shortly thereafter. And if you can point to one primary cause, it is the indoctrination, the dumbing down, and the sexualization of now working on four or five generations of young Americans. So if you were to list two or three things that we can do as families to slow it down or to get back to how things were, what would you recommend? Because that was a lot of scary stuff, scary thoughts that are going on. And, and we all know what's going on, but we don't want to think it's as bad as it really is, maybe. Uh, and, you know, I would urge people, I've been overseas almost all my life, so I think I have a little bit of a different perspective. But I would urge people to look around the world and to look back through history. Uh, America is incredibly unique. Right? If you look around the world and, around, and throughout history, the norm is tyranny, 
savagery, barbarism, oppression, mass murder, genocide, starvation. America is a really, really unique place. And it emerged entirely as a result of the biblical principles upon which it's founded. And we're on the verge of losing that. And so I would say for families, the first and most important thing you can do is protect your children from that. And that means 100% of the time, pulling them out of the public school system. Uh, and I just, I'm, I'm trying to just speak as clearly as I can. No, you don't live in a good school district that's different. No, just because your Christian Aunt Sally teaches there or works as a principal, it's not acceptable. It's a disaster. And you're, you're really risking your children. I tell people it's like playing Russian roulette, except five of the chambers are loaded instead of one. That's the risk that you're taking with your children. There's a very small chance they might make it through okay, but uh, it's a very, very small chance. And why would you want those odds for your children? So get them out. And then step two, you know, run from the burning building, the public education system, but then run toward something good, real education, right? Christian education centered on the timeless values enshrined in the Bible, timeless uh, moral principles that God has revealed in his word. Now, that needs to be the goal. And that may not save America. Right? I'm not saying that if 20% of Americans start homeschooling their children, then we're going to be able to save America. I don't know that America can be saved. I hope it can. I, I, I will work to try to make sure that it can. But if I'm quite honest, I don't know that it can. But we can at least protect our children. I, I know it, it, it's terribly sad and it makes me want to cry. And, and I think it should make all of us want to cry. And it will make everybody want to cry once you see what comes after America, if we get to that point. And we're very close to that point, you know, just to be clear, uh, we're about to lose it all. But if America crashes and burns, which I think is a very real possibility, somebody's going to have to rebuild from the ashes. And you don't want your child to be caught up in the tsunami that's coming. So the best thing parents can do is get their children a good education. That means a, a Christian education. And yeah, I believe homeschooling is the gold standard. Not everybody feels like they can. And so I, I, I do believe parents have the authority to delegate some of that. You know, if you want to hire a tutor, join a micro school, get involved with a co-op, find a, a good faithful Christian school. You know, there are options out there for the parents who don't feel like they can homeschool, but public school is not an option anymore. Not even just for Christians. I mean, just for anybody who loves their kids, public school is not an option anymore, period, end of story. The only you know possible excuse I can find for sending your kids to public school is if a court has ordered you to and they've threatened to steal your children from you if you don't send them. And I know one family, I think, who, uh, who's in that situation as a result of a divorce. It's, it's very unfortunate, but uh, that should be a lesson too. Make sure your family stays strong and stays together. You do not want the state intervening. You do not want judges ruling on how your kids are going to get an education. So, you know, parents just take this seriously because, uh, you know, you're talking about your, your children and your grandchildren and their future. Very few things are as important as that. And then what about when people say, if I pull my kids out of school and I homeschool, how are they going to get to college? I'm sure we could probably do a whole nother hour on going to college. But what would you, what are some things you would say? Because I know some parents are really concerned about that. Like if I pull my kid out of school, am I doing them a disservice? So what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, first of all, I would say, as Charlie Kirk says, we, we met at one of Charlie Kirk's events, college is a scam for the most part, right? Um, and it, college is really an overpriced turbocharging of the indoctrination. So, you know, I think most of the people who are right now getting college degrees are wasting their time and they're wasting their money. They're going into debt to get, you know, some stupid degree that's totally meaningless. You know, at this point, I, you know, I, I have people who work for me. I would not hire somebody who got a degree from one of these elite universities unless it was clear to me that they had rejected the insane values that are being taught there, period. So if you do determine or your children do determine that they need to go to college, if they want to be doctors or engineers or, you know, something that requires a college degree, good news for homeschoolers, you universities, including the most elite Ivy League universities, have realized homeschoolers are the best 
possible students. They're going to do better. They're going to perform better. They're going to get better jobs. They're going to donate more money to your endowment. So they actually are actively out there looking for homeschoolers to bring. And this includes even the most godless, wicked Ivy League institutions. They want homeschoolers desperately because they know they're better. And, and I mean, the data shows this, right? Go to the National Home Education Research Institute. Homeschoolers do better on every metric that we can measure. And colleges realize this, right? They don't want to just graduate a bunch of weirdos with purple hair that can't get a proper job at Starbucks. They, they want people who are going to go out and do something important it brings prestige and it brings money to the university in the future. So don't worry, parents, if you homeschool your kids, they can still go to college if that's what you and they think they need to be doing. So the lesson is get your kids out of public school. Homeschooling is the best. Well, thank you so much, Alex, for being on the show. I hope we can do a part two. You are filled with so much wealth and knowledge, and I just love your passion for how you want to save America and how we can help other families. Thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Happy to do a part two. God bless you and talk to you soon. Okay, thanks so much. Hi, friend. Before you go, I want to thank you for listening. And if you found this podcast helpful, I would truly be grateful if you could just take a moment and leave me a five-star review. Your review will help me improve and reach more listeners who could benefit from homeschooling. Until next time, keep exploring and discovering new ways to make your homeschooling a fun and enjoyable experience. Happy homeschooling! Oh,